0: Thought leadership from PWC. Welcome to PWC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in as we continue our 2022 SEC Comment Letter Trend Series. This week, we have a new topic as our number three spot climate. To avoid receiving a letter,
1: I think you really need to look at the dear issuer comments and what they're focused on uh, to evaluate what's in your sustainability reporting what you've publicly disclosed and compare that
0: honestly to what's in your financial statements pwc national office partner valerie weeman here to break down the major comment letter themes plus insights on some of the biggest challenges companies face there's a lot to cover so let's get started Val, welcome to the podcast. So nice to have you on and so nice to be able to record with you in person. It's very different being here. Yes, it's awesome, right? So Val, I love our topic today because it's something we've been talking about all year, but it's one of our, it is our newest comment letter trend and that would be climate. And for those of our listeners who've been watching, it's number three on our comment letter chart. Um, So who knows if it's going to keep going up those charts, but I thought it would be helpful because everyone's going to be coming at this with a different level of knowledge, even though we've talked about it before, thought it might be nice to take a step back and just like sort of where did this come from and why all of a sudden are we seeing all these comments? So Heather, it
1: sort of feels all of a sudden, but it's really a long time coming and it's been gaining momentum. I think that's what people are feeling. So you start back in 2010 with the SEC issuing interpretive guidance. And at the time, it really wasn't that big a deal. It sort of came out. There was a sort of a bit of a pop and attention at the time, but not really um, as substantial a focus. And over time, they've sort of reiterated the importance of it. Um, But you really took a giant leap forward when you got to March of 2021. Um, So that's when Alison Heron-Lee, who was the acting uh, chair of the SEC at the time, she issued her public statement asking for public disclosure or public comment on climate disclosures. And in the same statement, she reiterated the importance of this 2010 SEC interpretive guidance. So it got a lot of attention. um, And then when you jump to September 2021, the SEC actually put out what they referred to as the a uh, dear issuer letter, um, which some people refer to as a, a dear CFO letter. So it's really just a template of the types of comments that the SEC wants to or expects to be able to issue to registrants, um, and they've done it periodically over the, the sort of the past years uh, on specific topics where they really want to give companies a head start, sort of a, a early preview of here are the types of comments that we expect to be issuing. So they did that in September 2021, and then that was really the impetus for the new round of disclosures that have come out. So they issued, I don't know, between 30 and 40 letters at the time, um, so this time last year, to companies basically consistent with the 2010 guidance and really trying to uh, focus them on how their disclosures under the current rules, and I know we'll talk about the SEC proposal later, but how the current rules should really be expected to elicit some climate disclosures.
0: Well, and I think, you know, you kind of made the point that that dear is sure letter is to give you sort of a jump start. And I do think if I put myself in the shoes of a registrant, there is a huge benefit because in lieu of yourself getting a letter, although obviously we know some group of restaurants did, you can almost use that letter as like a checklist. So I do want to come back to some of what's in there so we can be talking to our listeners about what they should be thinking about as we look at year-end two. It's been more than a year. But I still think, you know, as you said, um, there's there's still comments coming. So with all that said then, We've spent time talking before and we've heard a lot about this 2010 interpretive release. And given that it's the fact that it's the basis for the staff's comments and that I'm sure many of our listeners were not even practicing accountants back in 2010. That's a little sad because, you know, we were. <laughs> Very much so. Um, and even for those who were, we we may not have all been paying attention. There are a lot of other things going on in the world at that time. So can you just give a quick refresher on what are, what is included in that existing guidance? Sure. So the 2010 interpretive guidance identified
1: probably four main areas where the existing rules of the SEC would generally be expected to elicit the types of disclosures that they wanted for transparency into the risks related to climate Um, And those four areas started with the description of a business. So that was really disclosing the material effects regarding compliance with government regulations, which would include, obviously, environmental regulations um, and the impact that those would have on the company's capital expenditures, their earnings, their competitive analysis. So really more of a, a broader picture. Then in more detail, they talked about the legal proceeding section, and that was pretty straightforward. There are specific rules that talk about disclosures related to environmental litigation, and those go back, I think, to the 1970s, we've mentioned on previous podcasts. And then the risk factors, and that's where we'll get into the, the nature of the comments and where people are really starting to focus, is in the risk factors, they talk about what are the material factors that make investments risky. Now, those are generic rules. They apply to every risk that's faced by the company. But the 2010 guidance said that you really need to make sure that you're considering how those rules apply to your expectations of the impact of climate change. And then the last area related to MD&A. And there they wanted you to be mindful of the risks and opportunities that climate change would have for the company and how they are identifying, discussing and analyzing sort of the trends and uncertainties that they're exposed to. Um, Again, typical to what you would include in MD&A, but specific to how climate change is really um, built into some of those fluctuations. And then I should mention that while those are all sections within the 10K, uh, that there were similar and comparable disclosures that they detailed uh, for foreign private issuers as well.
0: Perfect. And Val, you know, for our listeners who have been paying attention, many of those topics actually do sound familiar from the proposed rules. But obviously, again, this was more than 12 years ago that this originally came out. So One thing I think is interesting is that the 2010 guidance actually includes recommended disclosures. And as you well know, we don't normally read here on the podcast, but I do think this is a place where a little reading could be helpful to share some of what was recommended in terms of disclosure. See, I was set to paraphrase
1: and now you can make me read my bullet points. So under the indirect consequences and opportunities, and here, to your point, the SEC was trying to make it as specific as possible. Because they were trying to interpret a general principle for this um, sort of specific topic, they gave specific examples. So decreased demand for goods that produce significant greenhouse gas emissions, increased demand for goods that result in lower emissions than competing products increased competition to develop innovative new products and increased demand for the generation and transmission of energy from alternative sources. They then got into, um, and again, you'll hear the echoes of the current proposal on the impacts of climate change on the severity of weather and what those impacts are. So they spoke about for registrants with operations concentrated on coastlines, property damage and disruptions to operations, including manufacturing operations or the transport of manufactured products, and indirect financial and operational impacts from disruptions to the operation of major customers or suppliers from severe weather, such as hurricanes or floods. And then lastly, with regard to new legislation, they talk about uh, the impact of um, costs to purchase Uh, or profits from sales of allowances or credits under a cap-and-trade system, which I know is near and dear to your industry background as well as changes to profit or loss arising from increased or decreased demand for goods and services produced by a registrant arising directly from legislation or regulation and indirectly from changes to cost of goods sold.
0: Well, and Val, you did say that we sort of see the echoes of some of this in the 2022 proposal. And what's particularly stand out for me is that this talks about severity of weather, sea levels, airability of farmland, water availability and quality. And we do see all those, but notably the SEC also adds And when they're talking about types of severe weather, they added wildfires, which again, near and dear to me coming from California, but it's definitely something that unfortunately we really have seen an uptick since 2010. So it kind of shows, I think we're going to have the evolution. Yeah, that we're going to need to keep seeing this evolve. So all that background, we've almost given a roadmap to get to the comments, but what are some of the most common of the comments that we've seen?
1: Well, the good news is that they are sticking pretty closely to the uh, sample comments that they put in the deer issuer letter. Um, so they really aren't a surprise to most people. Um, They are talking about consistency of disclosures. So what they're looking at is in your corporate sustainability report, in your website, in your investor calls, are you talking about risks related to climate that don't appear in your financial statements? And that's really where they're getting at is that gap between public disclosures. So what is in your public statements that aren't in your public filings and trying to ask or ascertain what the reason is for that. Now, granted, in some cases, you have different audiences, you have different materiality thresholds, and it really comes out in the response letter. But that's one of the key target areas that they've looked at, in addition to the risk factors. So, again, we talked earlier about how the risk factor is a generic SEC disclosure, but um, this is really tailored toward has the company Really, gone through the process and the exercise of evaluating climate specifically. So, it's one thing to look at an overall population of risks, and it's another to make sure that you've targeted this specific element of risk, which not everyone uh, would ordinarily think of in the nature of their business. And sometimes you have to kind of put your you know, sort of your thinking hat on and try to figure out how these risks would impact the company. But those two areas, plus the MDNA, where they talk about environmental initiatives and net zero commitments, those are things that they think would reasonably be expected to be included in your filing, even though maybe if you hadn't put it in your CSR report, you could have made an argument that it wasn't as important or it wasn't important to your investors. But when you start publicly disclosing it outside the SEC filing, they really are trying to make that linkage and determine what's important to investors.
0: All right. And then Val, for those who are relatively new to this CSR report, what are we referring to?
1: Uh, So corporate social responsibility. Um, so it comes in different flavors, people call it different things, but really it's a summary of what the company, um, sort of what their position is for the environment. It could be very broad, it could be narrow. Um, a lot of times they're prepared relative to, we've spoken to before about the task force on financial related, sorry, the task force, TCFD, <laughs> the task force on climate related financial disclosures. Sorry, I got that one. Um, that the TCFD report, that's sort of the nature of the reports that we would refer to when we say CSR.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I do think notably with those reports, they do come in all sorts of flavors and sort of they're almost like custom for the company. That is part of what the SEC, the ISSB, and what we're seeing in the EU, all of them are kind of getting at is we need some more standardization in that area. And even though the SEC is using the template comments, as
1: a basis, they are tailoring it to the company's facts and circumstances. So they are going to websites and looking at those reports and making sure that the comment really is reflective of the issues they see
0: in that company's specific filings. So Val, then another thing I I remember clearly last year at this time, the first letters had come out. None of them were public yet because there is a process between when the registrant gets a letter, they go through all the rounds and then eventually they are posted and will be made public. So I remember there was a great sense of eagerness to know what those letters actually said. Now, fast forward one year later, we have seen those letters What types of things did we see in terms of responses from registrants to that first round of letters?
1: You know, Heather, when you look at the letters, it seems like they took it a little bit lightly. um, And I think that trend is changing. And we'll talk about sort of the best practices um, today. But a year ago, it seemed pretty clear that companies were a little bit dismissive, actually, if I read the tone of the letter. So the responses said... Thanks for asking SEC, but it's not material and that's why we didn't disclose it and submitted their letter. And almost without exception, that did not satisfy the SEC on the first round. Uh, so we saw them go two rounds, we saw them go three rounds, but the SEC almost without exception came back with that first response saying, that's nice. But how did you think about materiality? What are the quantitative and qualitative factors that made you conclude that it was not material and explain those to me? And as I said that took sometimes two or you know sometimes three extra rounds in order to get that resolved. Now, the letter sometimes also told the SEC to look at or pointed out certain other disclosures that they thought meant sort of the, the nature or the spirit of the disclosure. And sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't, where they said, well, we disclosed this and that's what we meant. The good news is that the responses for anything we've seen actually to date have not resulted in any restatements and actually pretty limited additional disclosures. So, the responses, uh, in some cases, the SEC has asked for expanded disclosure. And in some cases, the company has just said, we will look at it going forward. We'll continue to monitor, et cetera. But um, that was really how most of them got resolved.
0: Wow. So it sounds like key advice here is to not take these questions lightly, uh, which I think would be our advice for any comment you're receiving from the SEC. So then, Val, if we look ahead or look Later in 2022, um, I know that registrants are still receiving comments on climate-related matters. Any changes in trends in terms of the more recent letters or um, you know, the types of questions that the SEC is asking? There really haven't been any significant changes. They are still sticking
1: pretty closely to that 2010 interpretive guidance to the Dear issuer letter. So definitely the flavor of the letters are consistent. Um, and then from a... Um, Response standpoint, I think companies are learning um, from looking at those prior letters. And we did, at least it was the first one that I saw that went away in the the first round. So the first response from the company actually detailed, showed their work, here's how we consider materiality. And here's why we don't think that additional disclosure is needed. Or here's where we've made some additional disclosures in that direction, but broad based or restatement or, uh, you know, a lot of different disclosures are not necessary. I think also the primary focus area are risk factors. So while we mentioned that the uh, interpretive guidance addressed your MD&A and your legal and your description of the business, it's really in risk factors where we're seeing most of the responses, sort of the suggested additional disclosures. So companies are expanding how they're considering their risks and sort of adding them to a list of, like I said, all of the uh, generic disclosures and then this one in, uh, specifically.
0: Let me ask you another question then, because I know we've both been out a number of clients and talking about the proposed rules and what's going on and what's going to be required. But inevitably, I end those sessions by reminding companies about the importance of making sure they are focused on their disclosures in accordance with the 2010 guidance and reminding companies about the dear issuer letter, et cetera. Now, I do get the question, and I'm sure you are too – okay, but the new rules are coming. Why do I still need to be focused on 2010? And so how, how do you think about that? How do you respond? Why focus on 2010 when it's going to be changing? Well,
1: it's fair that we get that question a lot. Um, and I think that the importance of the 2010 interpretive guidance is that it's based on the existing securities laws. So clearly, these are the rules that companies are currently required to disclose Uh, You have the groundswell of interest from an investor standpoint for enhanced disclosures. So I think there's still demand to expand those disclosures. And when you look at the climate proposal, you're looking at, you know, I think there was a fear that it would be effective for 2023 disclosures. Now it seems apparent that it won't apply to 2023. You're looking at 2024, but it's a long time between now and then. So I think it really is important. The SEC is still focused on it. It's been an announced priority from Chair Gensler. So I really think it's still important that companies focused on expanding those uh, disclosures consistent with that guidance. All
0: right. So I do want to come back to best practices for how to respond. But since you mentioned the uh, timing of the new guidance or the proposed new guidance, what's the latest? I think at one time uh, we were saying it was October because the SEC's Reg Flux agenda still says October. Now we're obviously in November. So... What's your crystal balls telling you? You know what? Our crystal balls
1: are uh, falling a little short on us the, lately. Um, <laughs> a little foggy. A little bit, a little foggy. And uh, I, I think I'm one of the last holdouts that for a long time I've been saying, I still think it's 2022. I still think it's 2022. We're now approaching the middle of November and I'm starting to question my okay. own judgment on that one. So I'm thinking... Yes, I, I gave up on that a long time <laughs> yeah, ago. I think so, I'm, I'm, like... I'm right on the verge of giving up on that. So yeah. I do think it will be early in 2023, um, which I think... Uh, makes it pretty clear that, uh, you know, a January 1st, 23 effective date, which, you know, some say the proposal was actually just illustrative, but seemed to be targeted toward that date. Um, So I think that'll be welcomed. But um, I do think early 2023.
0: All right. Well, so Val, very interesting. We'll see. We should be taking um, some, you know, do a pool on when we think it's going to happen. But Maybe that's for 2023. All right. So let's go back to current because that's what um, our listeners need to be focused on right now is their year-end reporting or for the off-calendar year-ends, their quarterly reporting. And anything, what's your advice that you are giving to companies in dealing with these types of comments and in preparing maybe to, or in potentially avoiding receiving a letter? Well,
1: To avoid receiving a letter, I think you really need to look at the dear issuer um, comments and what they're focused on uh, to evaluate what's in your sustainability reporting, what you've publicly disclosed, and compare that honestly to what's in your financial statements. So I think if you um, stick pretty close to that, if you have a basis for understanding of your materiality assessment and why you've made decisions about what to or not to disclose, I think that's going to be helpful I think in the event that you receive a letter, you need to take it as seriously as you would any other letter that you get from the SEC staff. Uh, Your response should provide as much detail as possible. It should be quantitative and qualitative, especially when you're considering the materiality of the disclosures. And as I said, that's really the key to what we saw in um, the limited number of letters that have gone away in the first round. Um, But I also think that Uh, any of the comments, and I know you've you've spoken to uh, Kyle Moffat and others before about best practices for responding, they still apply here. So it's, um, do you understand what the SEC staff is getting at? Um, And if you don't, you can reach out to them. Uh, Do you need more time to really have that detailed disclosure that you're that you're proud of and that you're comfortable with? And if you do, then just reach out to the staff and ask for more time. So all of those aspects that apply to a general letters would apply to these letters as well.
0: All right. Well, definitely good advice there. And something for companies to think about as they approach year end. So now we're up to my favorite part of the podcast. And that would be where I try to stump you. And there's so many different directions it could have gone today, but we have got some good questions. So I'm not sure I would know the answer to this one. So I'm glad you're not asking me. Who was the SEC chairman when the 2010 interpretive guidance on climate was issued? Wow. I'm going to go with Mary Jo White. Close. Mary Shapiro. Ah, very close. Very close. All right. So here's the second one. And I have an excellent clue. I get clue. two of them today? Yes. I have an excellent clue for you on this one. So the SEC's new proposal on climate disclosures is almost 500 pages. I think 490 to be exact. But how many pages was the 2010 interpretive guidance on climate? And I can give you a hint if you I'm need just going to guess wild. Okay. I'm going to go
1: on 42
0: had such a good hint for you all right would you like the hints you can guess again okay all right which means i'm totally off but go ahead no no, no not totally off not totally off so the hint is it's is the same length as our our letter to the sec on the uh current proposal before we had to reformat it for the letterhead <laughs> <laughs> okay
1: then that would be in the ballpark of 35 29 pages. Uh, and the, that,
0: that was the unformatted version? Yes, 29 pages. I must be remembering the formatted one. Okay. <laughs> in any event, you were close with 42. Normally I would have given you credit, but I was so sure you would like my hint. So in any event, it's kind of funny. We're going to, you know, the this proposal, almost 500, and that initial one was only 29 pages. But a lot packed in there, and 29 pages is pretty short, so definitely recommend that. Um, any listeners who may be impacted, do take a, a look through that again. Uh, So Val, as always, such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Heather. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved.